exploring in order to understand the suttas is a courageous task. Sometimes it's difficult, not because of the material to cover, but because of what we have to deal with within us, the things that we must relinquish, the things that we need to drop and let go of. Oftentimes we build ourselves our own versions of towers of Babylon in a sense to, to with the rocks and, and, and mortar of experiences and knowledge gained and experiences especially underlying that because that's a big factor in this practice and on this path in the Dhamma or what we call Buddhism. But Buddhism as such is also a vastly powerful educational system. That means we can continuously educate ourselves. Just like in a school or any educational institution, you go and you move up from one grade level to the next. And sometimes, if not often, we encounter situations where we must let go of previously held notions, even beliefs, as we revisit certain principles, certain truths, if you will. And for that, Lord Buddha always encouraged his students to learn the discourses, learn, understand, and study, but not making the studying part the all in all in the practice because he gives it importance, but not so much that it overshadows or um, clouds over the, the work that needs to be done, which is the practice. We need sufficient amount of information, yes. Understanding, yes but we need to do something with it, work on ourselves with it. Otherwise you're just gathering data, which is a futile and rather boring. and very conceited affair. Definitely doesn't get us to awakening. And that's what this path is about. The culmination of which is awakening. That's why if it, if, it, if it differs, the Dhamma, Buddhism, if it differs from the educational uh, system that I mentioned earlier, then it does so because it has an end point. Other educational systems don't have an end point. You just keep on going indefinitely. But when it comes to the path, to the practice, there is a culmination, and that is what we call arahantship. The final stop, finish line, if you will, where you drop the raft, you put it down, and you're like, you cross over, you're good to go.
I say this because this sutta that we're going to cover today is a beautiful sutta. It's a powerful sutta. It's a one that used to be intimidating for me. Um, and I was kind of somewhat secretly trying to avoid it. And because I had prepared, uh, I don't know if you received the email from Dhammadina, but I had already prepared another sutta. <laughs> and then a few days ago, I realized, no, 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 no. I have to cover this first because it builds the groundwork for us to go and explore other suttas like the one that I was supposed to, thinking, going to be sharing. So today's sutta is called the Mahavedalla Sutta, which is uh, Majjhima Nikaya, or Middle Length Discourses, number 43. And um, it's a long sutta, but not as long as some of them that we've covered. But um, yeah. The meditation that you did just now, although albeit brief, I think it's going to come quite handy to kind of absorb some of the things that Venerable Sariputta and Maha, Venerable Mahakotita discuss. So let's begin. I'll start with some verses. Now, these verses are not found in the sutta, but they nevertheless are very related and very pertinent. Uh, quite so. And these verses are from the Theragata, or the verses of the bhikkhus, uh, the elders, the arahants. Stilled and perfectly quiet, the wise speaker never arrogant. He shakes off evil states, much like the wind shakes off the leaves from a tree. Stilled and perfectly quiet, a wise speaker he is, humble and kind. He has plucked off evil states, much like the wind blows the leaves off a tree. Still, trouble-free, collected and stable, undisturbed, beautiful in conduct, truly wise. He is one called an end-maker of suffering. These were the words spoken by the Venerable Sariputta about his friend, Venerable Mahakotita, um, for whom he had such great respect, high regard, um, as we see captured within these three stanzas. So in this sutta, we see Venerable Sariputta uh, being met um, with his friend, who gets up, Venerable Mahakotita. He gets up uh, in, uh, from his meditation, and he heads towards where Venerable Sariputta is to ask some questions. Um, so they're both arahants, by the way. In fact, this um, sutta happens to be um, 
part of a series of discourses uh, named uh, that come under the heading of questions and answers series, uh, which we see referenced even by the Buddha himself in various different suttas, uh, especially in the Anguttara Nikaya, we have several references being made by the Buddha when he is comparing, let's say, what I was mentioning about uh, Bhikkhu, who is very much uh, lost in education, educating himself or just studying the suttas. He says, um, someone who has done the discourse of the suttas, the jatakas, and then he also mentions the series on questions and answers. So he mentions that. So we know that this was, uh, these were a series of uh, discourses that were around even at the time of Lord Buddha. So this particular um, sutta um, also therefore falls in, uh, under that same group. And this one is called the Maha Vedana because it's a vaster, it's, it's a bigger, um, uh, one of those series, uh, Q&A series. Now, usually these um, uh, questions and answer discourses take place between two students uh, or two, uh, when I say students, practitioners of the Dhamma. One of them usually, as far as I have come across, happens to be an Aramid. Uh, the other one um, is not, or sometimes it is, like the case is here today. Um, so this one happens to be um, one where there's, again, they have to be conversing on the Dhamma. There's got to be discussions on the Dhamma. But these uh, Q&A series questions, discourses are very instructional in um, their formula, formulaic structure. They're very instructional. They're not just uh, there between a curious mind and uh, them approaching someone who has the answers. They serve a pedagogical uh, purpose of teaching, especially those who were there around them or wherever these discourses are going to be repeated, uh, as is the case now here with us. So, for there's a term for the Q and A series. It's called Vedalla, and this one is called Mahavedalla, which is the great, greater um, discourse on the Q and A, where we have two arahants, as I mentioned earlier, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahakotita, and um, and this one is uh, preceding the the next. Vedala series, uh, uh, part of the series, which is Chula Vedala, which is a shorter uh, Q&A. And that happens to be uh, a discussion between the Arahant Bhikkhuni, uh, the nun, um, uh, Dhammadinna, and her former husband, who happens to be not an Arahant, but an Anagami. So he's a noble disciple. So, um, so it's an interesting um, discussion, that one as well. One that I uh, would like to touch upon uh, sometime in the future. So that one's uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 44, a beautiful sutra. Um, 
and you see the depth of the bhikkhuni Dhammadina, uh, who was uh, actually quite uh, recognized by Lord Buddha. Um, and her husband was Visaka. So the term Vedala is somewhat obscure at times. Um, usually commentators say it's, it's more of a dialectical nature. Again, pedagogical uh, purpose has to be there in you know, formulating this question because they cover the major, major principles of the Dhamma. And not just in a form where it's a philosophical thing or something, no, they very much are related with taking those principles and seeing how it is applied in the practitioner's progress. So this is a wonderful map, any of these. They constitute a wonderful uh, formula, a structure where there's a step-by-step -step process as to what is taking place in this stage, for example, whether it's a stage in, in, in a jhana, or meditation, meditation, deep level of meditation, or in the case of liberation or release of the heart or mind. Uh, some commentators have said that uh, uh, there's a presence of uh, wisdom and joy in the questioner, in the questioner within these series. So there's, there's this like delight, especially you'll see it today also, where the questioner gets Venerable Mahakotita in this case, gets the response from Venerable Sariputta and he's delighted. And you see the same happening with uh, Visaka uh, and, and, and his former wife, the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina. So um, the, the questions being asked today uh, from Venerable Mahakotita relate with, um, uh, uh, they have the, the purpose of exploring psychological issues, basically. And so for example, there are gonna be um, questions on perception, feelings, uh, consciousness, wisdom, right view, especially uh, mind consciousness, um, various releases, uh, various levels of liberation, if you can call it that. Um, and um, also even the first and uh, fourth jhanas and uh, what takes place. So uh, just a few words about Venerable Mahakotita. He was born in the noble class. Uh, um, of the Indian uh, structure of uh, classes within society. So he was born in a very wealthy uh, Brahmin family and uh, in the city of Savati. And um, as he was growing up, he became uh, very much driven to study the Vedas, uh, the holy texts of the, of the Brahmins. So he studied all the major three Vedas. He, he became an expert at it at a young age. But then one time he hears Lord Buddha giving a Dhamma talk, which was normally the case with many of the Brahmins who turned and became bhikkhus. Many of his students were Brahmins. Um, and so this was the case also with Venerable Mahakotita. And that was it. And he went and became uh, ordained, uh, received his high ordination. And because he pursued his meditation uh, assiduously and, and, and very carefully uh, 
um, practice, uh, he, not long of a time, he actually attained Arahantship. So that's in a nutshell of the background. So let's, uh, let's begin. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anatta Pindika at Jeta's Park in the city of Savati. It was during that time that one evening, the Venerable Mahakotita came out of his seclusion and went to the Venerable Sariputta. And after exchanging friendly greetings with him, he sat to one side and said, Friend, there is the saying, someone lacking in wisdom. How could someone who is lacking in wisdom be recognized? Friend, this is Venerable Sariputta responding. Friend, someone lacking in wisdom is recognized by their sheer lack in understanding. And what is meant by their lack in understanding is the fact that the person does not know what is suffering. First noble truth. One does not know what the cause and origin of suffering is. One does not know that there is the ending of suffering. And one does not know the very path that leads to the ending of suffering. Therefore, friend, the person who does not know these things is recognized as someone who is lacking in wisdom. Oftentimes people say, yeah, so what's the big deal? I always know what suffering is. I know what it is. Well, how are you living your life? Based on that so-called knowledge that you have. In essence, everybody knows, but what's the level of understanding of the suffering that one is experiencing? That is key because you need to do something with that level of understanding. Otherwise, it's not understanding. It's just you're pushing through the strife. You're pushing through the difficult times and not learning from the whole thing because there isn't a life transformation taking place. Hence, the lack in it being the truth of something, in this case, the truth of suffering. So you can intellectually understand, you can write several theses, basically dissertations on the Four Noble Truths. Means nothing if it's not putting a dent in how you view your life and no, no transformation is taking place in the mind because there is no change happening. Because they, the person, and there's the other camp of individuals, misguided ones, who are just, they just say, well, Buddhism is all about suffering. The Buddha always taught suffering. They don't see, they don't understand, meaning they lack in wisdom. The very fact, because of the very fact that they have omitted the third and the fourth noble truth. There's a cessation of suffering that the Buddha taught and the fourth one is the way out of it, meaning the Eightfold Path. So let's continue. Very good, friend, replied the Venerable Mahakotita, as he was delighted in agreement with the Venerable Sariputta's words. Then he asked another question. Friend, there is the saying, someone who is wise. How can someone who is wise be recognized? The opposite role. Friend, Someone who is wise is recognized by their ability to understand with wisdom. 
And what is meant by their ability to understand with wisdom is the fact that the person does know what is suffering. One does know what the cause and origin of suffering is. One does know that there is the ending of suffering. And one does know the very path that leads to the ending of suffering. Therefore, friend, the person who does know these things is recognized as someone who is wise. Pretty self-explanatory. Now, when you look at this, uh, you know, on a superficial level, you might think that Venerable Mahakotita is just asking some random questions and, you know. But yes, I did mention that he, he was an arahant also, but what I didn't mention that uh, is the fact that he was recognized by Lord Buddha as being one of the 80, 80 foremost disciples. He had 80 foremost disciples, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, lay male disciples and female lay disciples who were at the top within their group, meaning the four groups, uh, whatever category the Lord Buddha saw them in. And in the case of Venerable Mahakotita, he was the foremost top bhikkhu in the group of uh, bhikkhus, uh, arahants, who was skilled and had an in-depth understanding of the analytical uh, wisdom or analytical knowledges. So it's very fair, you know, we can say, it's fair to say that uh, he had all this covered. He knew all this. So why did he ask? We need to consider the situation because these great disciples, eminent disciples of Lord Buddha, they didn't just necessarily live. Even Venerable Mahakasapa, who was known as the most austere, the most seclusion, uh, like secluded type of a bhikkhu, they nevertheless had around them a group of students, disciples, bhikkhus, novices. So when we heard or read um, Venerable Mahakotita getting up in the evening and going towards Venerable Sariputta, let's not think that he just went on his own, just walking by himself in the, you know, he was walking with his group of students to meet Venerable Sariputta who was sitting along with his students. So great masters would teach in that form, their own students by engaging in an interesting uh, give and take this Q&A, Vedala, right? So, um, yeah, so uh, I just wanted to mention that. Friend, he continues, uh, Venerable Sariputta, uh, actually Venerable Mahakotita. Friend, there is the saying, consciousness, consciousness. How can consciousness be recognized? Friend, Consciousness is recognized as the faculty that knows. And what it knows is the following. This is pleasure, this is painful, and this is neutral, neither painful nor pleasurable. Therefore, friend, it is because of the fa uh, faculty to know these things that it is, is said, consciousness, to become aware of something. Some teachers call it uh, sense awareness instead of the word consciousness, because in English we have consciousness that is used in different contexts and sometimes it can be confusing. 
so I appreciate some uh, um, teachers who have, uh, like Ajahn Man or Ajahn Mahabhu, have said, have used the word uh, sense awareness uh, to describe, to kind of gives you more of a, a depth, you know, different hues of the word consciousness. So uh, he continues. Uh, friend, there is the saying, wisdom and consciousness. Now, are these separate from one another or are they aspects of the same process? And how can wisdom and consciousness be differentiated from each other? Um, wisdom is part of um, the right view, which is the very first part of the Eightfold Path. So it is a path factor. You have this uh, right view sooner or later, um, meaning wisdom, as you're practicing the Eightfold Path, sooner or later, you will be experiencing, if you persevere on the path and practice, you will, uh, you will taste the path, the path, magga it's called. Each of the stages that I've gone over many times, and we'll talk a little bit more about at least one of or a few of them today, uh, um, Sotapanna, which is the stream enterer or stream winner, Sakadagami, which is the once returner, the Anagami or non-returner, and the Arahant. These, each of these has uh, its own respective magga or path portion. Think of it like the entryway. It's like uh, uh, one of the Ajans used to say, it's like getting up on, like walking up the stairs and you reach the floor that you're going to be walk on. Uh, one foot is on it, but the other foot is not. That's like the path. That's called the Magga. The other portion of, so let's say if it's a Sotapan or stream winner, stream enterer, it has the Magga, which is the one of the legs, one of the feet landing. The other one is the fruition where both feet land. So now you're there. So that person, if they reach the fruition of Sotapanna, they're called full-fledged, complete Sotapanna. Similarly with Sakadagami, Magga, Pala, path and fruit, anagami, path and fruit, and arahant, path and fruit. So uh, when we say the path factor, which means the whichever one it is that they're talking about, right view delivers the person to taste that uh, first step of any of these attainments that are super mundane. So therefore, wisdom must be uh, uh, cultivated. Um, and, um, and consciousness, on the other hand, uh, is one of the uh, five aggregates, uh, khandas, um, and uh, that allows us to get a purview, uh, a front row seat as to what suffering tastes like. What is suffering? If you don't have consciousness, you won't know what suffering is. So consciousness is so necessary. And it's, it's, it's the thing that you know, distinguishes, one of the things that distinguishes a, a person who's thinking, who's processing from a, uh, a dead person, uh, which we'll have references to. So anyhow, uh, Venerable Sariputta is responding. Friend, wisdom and consciousness are fused together and therefore are not separate. 
and it is impossible to separate them from one another, as they are aspects of the same process. For whatever one understands with wisdom, that becomes known for the person. And whatever one knows, that is understood with wisdom. This is the reason why wisdom and consciousness are fused together and therefore are not separate. And it is impossible to separate them from one another as they are aspects of the same process. In that case, friend, this is again, Venerable Mahakotita, seeing that wisdom and consciousness are fused together and therefore are not separate, then how can one differentiate them from each other? The way to differentiate wisdom and consciousness, friend, is that wisdom must be constantly developed while consciousness must be thoroughly understood. How can you understand consciousness? That's a fair question. Well, in Buddhism, in the Dhamma, we have the six consciousnesses, right? When you have the eye, you have the visual object. When you bring these together, what do you have? Visual consciousness, sight, in other words, right? And these three, when they come together, there is what? Pasa or contact. Because of contact, there is feeling that arises. So when we are using, obviously they're fused together as Venable Sariputta says, that wisdom allows the mind, the person, to distinguish, differentiate as to what type of consciousness is this? Because I might've seen that beautiful thing or ugly thing two days ago, but I'm still thinking about it. Hmm. Which consciousness is the thing that is perpetuating it? Ah, now we're talking about number six which is the Manu Vinya, which is the mind consciousness, which is the big, you know, head honcho, I like to call it, because that's the one that's really running the show often. So the wisdom part will understand the consciousness, therefore, in this, you know, use of this, these examples. Uh, then he goes, friend, there is the saying, feeling, feeling. How can feeling be recognized? Friend, Feeling is recognized as the faculty of feeling. And what it feels is the following. This is pleasure, this is painful, and that is neutral. Neither painful nor pleasurable. Therefore, friend, it is because of the faculty of, uh, to feel these things that it is said feeling. Friend, there is the saying perception, perception. How can perception be recognized? Friend, perception is recognized as the faculty of perceiving. And what it perceives is the following. This is yellow, this is red, and this is white. And, and there's nothing special about these three colors. You know, Venerable Sariputta would have used the green, blue or something, you know. Uh, therefore, friend, it is because of the faculty perce to perceive these things that it is said perception. Now, again, perception is not just about colors. Perception is very vast. In fact, I find the word in English, the word perception quite poor to describe the scope of what 
sanya is, which is what it usually is translated as by Western uh, translators. So I like it. So it's it's a vast, it's a spectrum. I like to use notions, memories, uh, concepts. Yes, perception, mental thought, mental, uh, imagery. All these things take part fall into the category of sanya. So let's not just look at it as just perception. Um, so, friend, there is the saying feeling, perception, and consciousness. Now, are these separate from one another or are they aspects of the same process? And how can feeling, perception, and consciousness be differentiated from each other? Friend, feeling, perception, and consciousness are fused together, just like wisdom and consciousness, and therefore are not separate. And it is impossible to separate them from one another as they are aspects of the same process. For whatever one feels is what one perceives. And consequently, whatever is perceived, one cognizes by becoming aware of it. That's the consciousness part. This is the reason why feeling, perception, and consciousness are fused together. Excuse me. And therefore are not separate. And it is impossible to separate them from one another as they are aspects of the same process. Uh, okay. Uh, friend, uh, oh, just a quick thing. So you can just put yourself in that environment that evening. You have these two eminent teachers asking questions. Basically, they are playing a role. They're role-playing. They're acting, in a sense, almost. I mean, I know it's it's um, it's not fair to you know to depict that, but basically, they're role-playing for the sake of explaining the Dhamma to their students. And um, they're playing the role of a pupil and teacher. And as you can tell, Mahakotita, Venerable Mahakotita, is playing the role of a pupil. And Venerable Sariputta is playing the role of a compassionate, caring, and very tolerant teacher. So, <laughs> which he already had, so he's not playing that. So he's not acting that, because he was known to be like Mother Earth. So, patient, uh, without any bounds. So, uh, friend, what does one become aware of when the person transcends the five sense faculties? while experiencing the purified mind consciousness. Um, now, when we hear the word, now, now this is where it, it gets into more deeper, uh, I wouldn't say supramundane, but basically deeper meditations. So when we hear the word purified mind consciousness, what we're talking about, purified or purity is in Pali, parisuddha or parisuddhi. Parisuddhiya. So in this case, it's Parisuddha uh, Manovinyana. So purified. So it's not just the typical persons, Putujanas, regular, common, ordinary, worldlings, uh, mind consciousness. A living being was just breathing and they just have a mind consciousness like everyone else. 
this is the purified one. So when we hear that, what we're being, what it's being referred to is basically the fourth jhana, the consciousness of a person in the fourth jhana, um, where we start to begin, you know, we start to experience the formless, formless. Uh, it's the beginning. It's the entry point into the formless meditations. They're called the uh, arupa vachara uh, jhanas. There's the rupa, which are the first uh, four, including uh, the, the fourth jhana. But this is where the person enters into uh, the uh, the realms of or dimensions of uh, uh, formless attainments. So, um, so yeah. So here's Venerable uh, Sariputta's uh, response. Friend, having transcended the five sense faculties while experiencing the purified mind consciousness, the person becomes aware of the dimension of the infinity of space by personally knowing how space is infinite. Similarly, one becomes aware of the dimension of the infinity of consciousness by personally knowing how consciousness is infinite. Also, one becomes aware of the dimension of nothingness by personally knowing how there is nothing. So basically, uh, what Venerable Sariputta is describing are the jhanas, you know, are the jhanas that follow the fourth jhana. And by the way, sometimes uh, individuals, some commentators have omitted or they didn't want to call these upper jhanas, higher uh, formless jhanas as jhanas. They've called it as the aspects or branches of the fourth jhana. But it really doesn't matter for the person experiencing it because they are really some amazing states of mind. And some, it's funny because sometimes uh, students come and, and report. I have to ask them, you know, what, what, where are you at? And how long you're sitting, what are your experiences? And sometimes they say how, like, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling that, like, there's, there's like, I can't, there isn't, uh, well, I don't wanna give uh, too much information because I know some students are very, you know, ready to take notes and, and, and then use that. Sometimes I've seen that happen, unfortunately without having experienced it. So, but basically these are things again, um, that must be personally experienced. These are not things that you read about and then you think you have it. No, you will know. When you burn your hand, you know you burned your hand. Okay, when you're smelling a plumeria flower, you know you're smelling it. No one has to convince you. You don't have to convince yourself. So it's very similar to that. It's pers personally experienced, which is the distinguishing factor of the Dhamma compared to anything else. Uh, given its teachings, you, have, you, you will taste it. You have to taste it in order for you to know that you're practicing it and you're seeing these signposts. You're going through them, these stages, and you'll know for yourself. So, and then the last one was uh, the third which is the realm of, or dimension of uh, nothingness uh, that uh, Venerable Sariputta was explaining. Uh, friend, by possessing what can someone truly understand a state that is to be known? Friend, 
one truly understands a state that is to be known by possessing the eye of wisdom. Uh, there's two kinds of, 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 of wisdom as is being referenced here. One is uh, tasted, uh, again, this, again, according to the Dhamma, the dispensation of Lord Buddha, uh, the original teachings uh, that we get from the Pali sources. Uh, so we have wisdom that comes through Samadhi practice, Samadhi, meaning the collectedness of mind, uh, which involves uh, using a meditation object. It could be the breath, it could be kasinas, it could be obviously metta, it could be the body. Um, you know, the Buddha gave, Lord Buddha gave so many different examples. And then the other type of distinguished wisdom um, is the one that we get through penetrative insight, which we call vipassana, vipassana. So the two don't necessarily have to be together. So you can practice straight vipassana, sometimes called dry vipassana, uh, like what Venerable uh, Mahasi Sayadaw would teach, or at least he came to be known as the teacher of just dry vipassana. But he also talked about samatha. Um, I used to think that he never talked about samatha or the jhana practices because that's what we were taught. But then you go and study his work and you, you see his lectures and his Q and A's and it's like, no, the Venerable really covered those because he was a wealth of, he was a living library of the Dhamma. Um, and he also participated as the, the questioner in during the sixth council in Burma in the sixties as a young monk. So he was like a living library of the Dhamma, the whole Tripitaka. So anyhow, I digress. Uh, and what, friend, is the purpose of wisdom? Wisdom, friend, is for the purpose of realizing directly, meaning direct knowledge, and completely. It is for the purpose of knowing thoroughly. It is the purpose of release. Release, uh, sometimes translators use giving up, relinquishing, but relinquishing what? What does the relinquishing lead us to when we're talking about direct realizable uh, experience, direct knowledge? We're talking about liberation, which you're gonna find me use a lot or see me as, as you've received these, the copies of this, uh, this translation uh, as, as uh, I don't use the word liberation that much. I use the release often and it's it's a matter of choice so um i find that to sit much better uh, uh, yeah so so it could be freedom also we can understand it as freedom liberation etc and what it is talking about is basically cheto um, vimutti uh, the release of cheto cheto or chitta is sometimes, uh, oftentimes actually, in my earlier years of studying uh, the Dhamma and, and academically, uh, etc., I would see it be represented as like the same way as it was a different reference to Manon, which is mind. But Lord Buddha was frugal with his words. 
yes, each of his words had so many nuances and he always applied them in, in you know, you have to take, you have to take it in contextual sense. But Cheta or Chitta uh, or Cheto in this case, cannot, I, I like to use it as reference to the heart, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. So instead of uh, liberation of the mind, I use now uh, release of the heart. Now, the heart is not necessarily the physical heart, the anatomical structure, physiological, you know, leading to the slightly to the left of the center of your chest. Um, that's not what we're talking about. So, um, yeah, so I, I just wanted to make that distinction between liberation of the mind versus release of the heart. They're the same thing. I just want to clarify because they're talking about vimutti. Which, by the way, is is uh, shows up about fifty times in this sutta itself, vimutti, the word vimutti in 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 the Pali version of it. So, um, because Venerable Mahakotita is is going to go deep into the different liberations or releases, uh, and including the boundless releases or the immeasurables or the um, the, the Brahma Viharas, uh, the Metta practice, for example, Karuna, Mudita, and Upekka practices, they take the person, they also have this, they are called Vimutti, liberation of the heart, release of the heart. Um, um, also, but again, I don't want to uh, overwhelm you with, with uh, too much at this point. Uh, friend, how many conditions are there for the arising of right view? Aha. Friend, there are two conditions for the arising of right view. Either hearing it from an outside source, like in the, as in the voice of another, or exercising wise reflection internally. These are the two conditions whereby right view arises within a person. This is known, like, you know, this Venerable Sariputta really was known because of this, because of the importance he uh, uh, laid out on the uh, the hearing the voice of another. That's why Kalyanamittas are extremely important. Spiritual friends with whom we can associate. But we don't associate simply to hang out and feel fuzzy inside or whatever. There's a purpose. The depth of understanding of the Dhamma needs to be cultivated during those interactions. Um, so when we hear the, the statement, like hearing the voice of another, we need to understand that it is referencing, listening to the Dhamma. You're not hearing the voice of another as they talk about what's happening in the world today. Who's wearing what today? What social justice or injustice is taking place here or there? That's not the Dhamma. You're listening to the Dhamma. And because what is the point of it? Well, it is talking about what inculcates, what brings about, what waters, nourishes right view for it to sprout and grow. That's why. And the second one is wise attention or wise reflection that is done exercise internally. And Pali, the Pali term for it is a beautiful one. It's, it's a two words. Uh, yoni so manasikara, 
it allows the mind to be focused. Every time you're practicing meditation, you are actually practicing Yoni Somansikara, if you're doing it right. Every time you're practicing Sila, if you're thinking about, you know, if I do this, I'm going to be breaking a precept. You are practicing some level of Yoni Somansikara. And especially when you're applying wisdom, you're understanding the different layers of the Dhamma. For example, as if you're listening and, and, and really absorbing these words of, of Lord, uh, well, uh, the suttas in this case, of Venerable Sariputta, that also allows you to create the atmosphere for Yoniso Manasikara, wise attention, to flourish. Um, and, and let's not forget how Venerable Sariputta himself became, uh, achieved uh, the state of uh, stream winner um, years earlier, um, simply because he heard from Venerable Asaji the first part of the verse that all things that have a big, uh, have, uh, are made from conditions and uh, so uh, whatever things that arise from a cause, basically. He heard that. He had the vision of Dhamma. He had the eye of Dhamma. He became a Sotapanna. And then he goes and speaks with, uh, he, he runs after Venerable, uh, who later became Mahamogalana, but uh, Venerable uh, Kolita was, was his childhood buddy. And they had both gone and become, uh, you know, ascetics. He goes because that was their pact. He goes and finds him, and he, he continues the. He says this verse, uh, portion of the verse, and then he adds the other line, and then Kolita. He also becomes a Sotapanna, and that gives them this incredible confidence and faith, which is the hallmark, the the signature of a person who has uh, attained Sotapanna. You have that strong, strong faith, unshakable in the Triple Gem, without even seeing the Buddha. They knew this was it, that's it. There's no more other teacher for me, that's it. Whoever said these words are it for me. Voice of another. Venerable Asaji said those words. Venerable Sariputta said those words. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to mention that. Um, and with Yoniso Manasikara, the wise attention, wise reflection allows us to see the impermanency of life, the inconstancy, meaning anicca of experiences, how thoughts arise, but they don't stay the same, do they? They sustain themselves somehow and then vanish. So Yoniso Manasikara, the wise reflection, the wise attention that we are engaged in constantly allows us to see these phases that things go through. The consciousnesses that keep coming up and changing, appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing. So wise reflection or wise attention is the thing which is gonna allow the person to see these three characteristics of existence and enhance the person's level of right view. So let's continue. Friend, how many factors must there be to support right view in order for the person to experience 
the liberation or release of the heart, freedom of mind, as their result, with freedom through wisdom as its outcome, as its fruit. I mentioned earlier about Chetuvimutti, uh, release of the heart or mind. Um, this is also in reference to Samma, Samadhi, or the collectedness of mind. Without developing Samadhi, the right kind of Samadhi that you see in the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, the last rung of the Eightfold Path, in fact, uh, what you're talking about is the crucial element because right view will take you straight down to Samma Samadhi. Samadhi will take you straight to Samma Samadhi. And because of that, there is the possibility for the person to experience liberation. Now, this is crucial because sometimes I see people practicing some form of Samadhi, some form of meditation, albeit even it even has the bells and whistles of being like uh, Buddhist or, or having some Dhammic elements to it, but they're not. And the person might dedicate a lifetime to that, thinking and feeling or perceiving that that was proper Samadhi. And that's why we're doing what we're doing today. Meaning exploring the suttas to understand what is what, what is Dhamma, what is Adhamma, because we need to be very careful. The teacher must be scrutinized. The teacher's words must be investigated. And this we get, we are authorized to do that by the Buddha himself. In the Vimansaka Sutta, he said, you are allowed to even do that with me. So basically he's saying that to, to because he was the epitome of the teacher capital T. And he allowed us. And now I see so, so many places where teachers, it's like, and the students mostly, the, the, the relationship of the student towards the teacher and what they're teaching as sacrosanct, flawless, infallible. Well, that's, that's not Dhamma. So you owe it to yourself to go and do your own investigation. Um, in the form of like not always doubting your teacher, but anything that doesn't sit well to go and explore the suttas. And that is the source. That is the source that we must return back to, to test, because that's what Lord Buddha talks about. He says, yeah, experience is good. It's, it's valid to some degree because you need to check it and recheck it against the two other sources. One is the suttas, the other one is the Vinaya, the code of discipline, which has tons and tons of discourses and, and, and teachings in it. So, and anytime you see something being mentioned once, that's suspicious because Lord Buddha never talked about something once. You see references being made in different places. So it's, it's like a web, it's a network. They have co-relationship to one another. They tied in beautifully. It doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. So, um, so yeah, so freedom of, of mind or release of the heart is uh, release of the heart from what though? Release from the delusion, release from hatred, release from lust, 
So long as the heart is drenched in lust, you might be wearing the cloak or the, the garb or the title or the hat of Dhamma, but you're just fooling yourself. If you have greed and calling yourself, I'm a Sotapanna, I'm this, you're not. Because there's still a lot of greed there. The fetters, even the first fetters, none of them have been relinquished. So the release of the heart is beautifully reflected in its purity. Purity of uh, as it's sequentially dropping the fetters. Uh, the first three, for example, in the case of the Sotapanna. And uh, as we go higher, they, they all come off until Anarahant doesn't have any of those 10 Sangyojanas or the fetters that we keep talking or referring to. Uh, so Samma Samadhi, I mentioned, has everything to do with developing serenity of mind, which I was referring to as Samatha practice, uh, where you use uh, different meditation objects. Um, so, but in the case of wisdom, that is the result. That is the thing that comes, like Vipassana I was mentioning, that comes through uh, penetrative insight. When we develop the ability to probe, not through analysis. Analysis serves a purpose, yes. Logic serves a purpose, yes, but it goes only so far. This is beyond its realm of influence. So it needs to be, the person has to spend time. It doesn't have to be, it could be a verse from the Dhammapada. It could be one of the lines from this sutta. But every time the person walks, and it doesn't have to be a teaching per se, it could even be your breath. But you are meticulously care, careful. There's wise attention, basically as you're noticing how the breath arises, you're there with it, you're holding its hand. You're seeing where the breath is sustaining itself. And then you start seeing when it slopes down and starts to vanish and it disappears and there's nothing now. Ah. And what's happening after that? There's a new breath coming. Constantly, very curiously, enthusiastically, staying with it. That allows the person, for example, to see, oh, there's anicca, the breath is not staying the same, you know, hmm, insight. And then you start seeing the same with thoughts and feelings and perceptions. The thing that I was holding so dearly, the person, the emotion. Yeah, but it doesn't have the same feel, the magnitude, the strength as it did when it first started. What is that? That causes me to have some dukkha there, doesn't it? Suffering. Because I don't want to lose that feeling, but I did. So Yoniso Manasikara allows the person to see these things, which basically is leading the person to develop penetrative insight, which is one of the fruits, outcomes of practicing vipassana. So, which takes you straight to arahantship, by the way. Um, right, uh, so he says, friend, right view is supported by five factors in order for the person to experience liberation or release of the heart as their result, with freedom through wisdom as its outcome, as its fruit, like I just was mentioning. Here, right view is supported by virtuous behavior, 
studying and discussing the Dhamma, serenity of mind and penetrative insight. Therefore, right view must be supported by these five factors in order for the person to experience the liberation, the release of heart as their result with freedom through wisdom as its outcome, as its fruit. Uh, when the five, uh, when these five factors that Venerable Sariputta is referring to reach their fulfillment, then um, you have the requirement for attaining the fruit of arahantship. Not a bad deal. The person no longer has the taints, meaning the asavas or contaminants. They're all shaken off. And that, that type of a person is declared as a person who doesn't have the defilements. They don't have it anymore. And their understanding is, you can call it like pure quality diamond without any inclusions, no lines, no cracks in it. Um, so he said, it continues, friend, how many realms of existence are there? Friend, there are three realms of existence, which are existing in the sensual realm, Kama Loka, uh, existing in the realms of dazzling form, the Deva realms, higher Deva realms, and existing in the realms that are absent of all forms. These are the Arupa Loka realms, where there is no form, just the mind. Uh, so, um, Sensual realm, sometimes people ask me, what is that, Bhante? Sensual realm, to make it easier for you, we live in a sensual realm. We love sensuality, we exist, we respond to sensory stimuli, for example, as do dogs, as the flea does, even microbes. So we live in the sensual realm. Um, so... Um, and then uh, even some of the devas, the lower devas, to some level, um, they also exist in sensual realms. And that's why uh, sensuality that you have experienced in this life as a physical form, a living being, cannot possibly compare to the sensuality in the, in the deva realms. It pales in comparison. Um, so... And uh, the dazzling realms are the upper realms, uh, luminous or radiant uh, realms that are very refined. And then the formless realms, which, as, as I said, there is no form, body. Uh, so, friend, what is the reason for future rebirth to take place into the various realms of exist existence? Friend, when sentient beings continue living while hampered by ignorance and fettered by constant craving, as they continuously long for various experiences, then, as a result, rebirth into various realms of existence takes place. Pretty self-explanatory. When we have that drive to experience new things constantly, um, uh, it's in Pali, it's bhava or pono bhavika. That's a fancier term for the, the constant rebirth into sansara. Uh, it's more specific. Uh, but bhava is what we use normally, rebecoming, or sometimes people call it existence. But what it is is basically just this constant 
state of being dissatisfied and you want to go and test, uh, try the other thing, taste the other ice cream flavor. Yeah, I won't try, I wouldn't try that. I wanna try that, I wanna do this or this teaching or that teaching. Uh, ceaselessly, it's tiresome as you can imagine. Uh, and what friend is the reason for future rebirth to not take place into the various realms of existence? Friend, when ignorance fades away and is no more, then direct knowledge arises, whereby craving ceases in one's heart. Then future rebirth into various realms of existence does not take place. You can tell a person again and again and again and again not to be having craving. But unless they've tasted, like I mentioned briefly about if you, if you burn your hand, you know you burned it. No one has to convince you. You can look at that as uh, similar to looking at direct knowledge, knowing it yourself experientially, personally knowing it firsthand. That is where the necessity for wisdom to, to, to come in to the picture. In order for the person to make that choice on their own at that point, at that junction in their lives and say, you know what? Enough is enough. Sooner or later, the person has to come to that point in order for them to tread upon the land of wisdom, which takes them into Arahanship sooner or later, because now they have right view, as I was mentioning earlier. But if they don't realize the importance of the truth of suffering, like Venerable Sariputta said very first, the beginning part of this sutta, then the person is going to keep chasing his or her own tail, never reaching any state, uh, state of appeasement, any state of contentment, any state of calm, any state of wisdom. So it's not the, the amount of suffering that one has to first face and then come. There's no amount of suffering that you're like, first you need to reach that you know, cap, as they say in taxes and things. And then it'll kick in, wisdom kicks in. No, there's no such thing. Sooner or later, and this is where merits and the work that one has done in the past can come in and all of a sudden says, you know what, I'm feeling so much disgust towards my tendency to keep adhering to this kind of a lifestyle. When am I gonna change? When? What am I waiting for? Old age? Well, what guarantees do I have that I'm going to reach it? Or that I'm going to die old in my bed, in my sleep? Maybe it's going to be an atrocious journey before I, that moment comes. Stop fooling around and just do what I need to do. That is a personal choice. That is a personal commitment that must happen in the heart and the mind of the person. And no one can tell that, no one can enforce that upon anyone. So, uh, and when that happens, you are now on track to really uh, break away from the cycle of Pono Bhavika, of rebirth in Sansara, because now there isn't that craving. It's much less, much less, much less. And that's where disenchantment and dispassion are growing. And then Venerable Mahakotita asks, friend, what is the first jhana? 
Friend, when the bhikkhu secludes himself from all types of sensual pleasures, removing oneself from all and any unwholesome qualities of mind, he enters into and remains in the first jhana. Meaning, uh, meanwhile, he still experiences thinking and pondering along with joy and bliss that are the results of him being secluded as he continues to stay on his object of meditation. This is called the first jhana. So you cannot force yourself into a jhana. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Uh, or hatefully push certain things away, including hindrances. The jhanas happen when we develop a healthier relationship with the hindrances, looking at them as sources of understanding for us, meaning they're teaching us something about ourselves and our own hangups. And then you start to let go a little bit and more and more and more. You, you loosen up your grips, if you will, on the whole meditation. And you start to feel more and more comfortable being in that state. And there is subvocal speech, of course, and that's where the thinking and pondering come in, and which we'll see later on uh, in, in case of Niroda. But uh, as you move up in the second jhana, the thinking and pondering must not be there in order for the second jhana to take place. That's why you start experiencing noble silence in the mind, which takes you can take you all the way to the uh, seventh jhana. Uh, of, of experiencing nothingness, for example. But I don't want to digress. So, friend, uh, the first jhana is supported by... Uh, oh, sorry. And how many factors, friend, is the first jhana supported by? Friend, the first jhana is supported by five factors. These are thinking, pondering, joy, bliss, and unification of mind. These are the five factors that support the first jhana. And how many factors, friend, does one have to abandon? And how many must one possess? Uh, how many factors one has to possess? In order to experience the first jhana, because I mentioned the hindrances, for example, but I kind of preempted it. Friend, five factors are to be abandoned and five factors, other factors must be possessed in order to experience the first jhana. In this way, for the bhikkhu to enter the first jhana, sensual desire must be abandoned. So you cannot be thinking about that delicious tiramisu or souffle or how great being, you know, in a sexual relationship was, let's say, or something like that, while you're trying to get into a jhana, because it's one of the five hindrances. It is going to pull you away distracted. Uh, so sensual desire must be abandoned. Ill will or hatred must be abandoned. Uh, you cannot be hating your neighbor because they're too loud and they're not allowing you to sit while you're trying to get into a jhana. It doesn't work like that. Um, laziness and drowsiness must be abandoned. If you cannot sit still, if you're constantly drooping, it's like drowsy, you're not going to go into any jhana and don't come back and say, Bhante, I just experienced neither perception nor non-perception. Nope. <laughs> you experienced a good amount of sloth, <laughs> sleepiness. Um, so next comes, uh, after laziness and drowsiness, agitation and worrisome thoughts. 
Uddacha Kukucha. Uh, these are really tough ones to get uh, a handle on. Um, so worrisome thoughts have also uh, must be abandoned. And skeptical doubt too must be abandoned. You know, I can never attain any jhana. It could happen to you, to her, to this, to that person, but not to me. That's skeptical doubt. And that's me taking away the wind from under my wings, if you will, or my sail. So we need to put that outside the door and say, whatever comes, let it come. I'm just gonna create the right uh, situation conditions and I'm going to have the right attitude and I'm going to practice what the teacher has given me without changing anything without adding anything and allow the mind to constantly uncoil constantly unravel itself and I'm just going to be here a witness to it with a smile well sooner than later you're going to if you keep that and maintain that consistent effort create that opportunity it will happen and much more than just the first jhana, by the way. So uh, further, the bhikkhu must possess thinking, as in applied thought, pondering, as in sustained thought, where you're sustaining, you're, you're maintaining your object of meditation. So if it's your metta, you're continuing to come back and seeing with wisdom whether you're still on radiating that metta towards your spiritual friend, for example, and lengthening that time the duration of that without any sense of agitation or forcefulness. That's key. So uh, also what have to be possessed by the person are joy, bliss, and unification of mind or ekagata. Ekagata, uh, eka means one, uh, gata or uh, agata, uh, agata, ekagata. It's, it's uh, gacha is to go and agacha means to come. A means the antonym. So it's coming to one, unification of mind, basically. That fits more uh, in, in, in this translation. As he continues to stay on his object of meditation. And it is in this manner, friend, that the bhikkhu abandons uh, five factors and must be possessed of five other factors in order to experience the first jhana. Friend, these five faculties each have their own scope and spectrum of experience, the five eyes, ears, etc. Do not, and they do not cross over into each other's respective range. That is the faculty of the eyes, the faculty of the ears, the faculty of the nose, the faculty of the tongue, the faculty of the body, and each have their own separate scope, their own spectrum of experience. Neither get befuddled with the other scope nor their spectrum of experience. Now, where do these five respective faculties coalesce into and fall back on as their support? What is it that interprets and experiences their individual processes? So what is the headquarters? What is the CPU, if I use like, you know, uh, computer language? So where do these things all come together? Basically, what is their resort? What is their refuge? These five senses. Friend, these five faculties each having their own scope and spectrum of experience do not, so he's repeating what Venerable Mahakoti just said, over into each other's ranges. Uh, that is the faculty of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, each having their own special, uh, separate scope, their own spectrum of experience, neither get befuddled with the other's scope nor their spectrum of experience. 
Now, these five respective faculties coalesce into and fall back on the mind as their support. It is the mind that experiences and interprets each of their individual processes. Remember I was mentioning about manovinyana. The mind consciousness is the interpreter, is the linchpin, if you will. It is where they come all in and then they get to be uh, translated or interpreted. So you remove that linchpin, everything falls apart. It's like the hub that holds the spokes of the bicycle, the wheel of the bicycle. Um, so um, Manovinyana also is able, the mind faculty is, is also able to not just process, interpret, understand, make sense of every other uh, senses, but it also is able to do that with its own um, range. So it's able to turn its gaze upon itself and explore. If we didn't have this function or faculty, there's no way we would be able to do, to practice Yoni Somanasikara. There's no way we would have the ability to become Arahants. The Buddha would have never taught, but he taught because he saw the way, he saw the way out because most, well, all the teachings at that time, they were just going in circles. Some of them looked like, feel, felt like they were really experiencing something super mundane, but they weren't because they were just experiencing some of the higher jhanas and that's it. So, uh, yeah, so it's also able to, just like the eye is able to um, capture its own object, meaning the eye, uh, form, the visual object, the mind uh, is able to capture its own object and its own object in this case, like I mentioned earlier, are sanyas, right? Memories, concepts, perceptions, etc. notions. So he continues, friend, by relying and depending on what are these five faculties sustained? Friend, these five faculties are sustained by relying and depending on the living vitality. Oh. And what, friend, does living vitality depend on in order for it to be sustained? Friend, living vitality depends on internal heat. And what, friend, does the internal heat depend on in order for it to be sustained? Friend, the internal heat depends on the living vitality. So he's like, okay, he's just went back to what he said first. But just a few words on vitality, living vitality. Ayu, ayu is, is, is life in a sense, in, in, in Sanskrit, in Pali. Like we have, for example, the ancient uh, medicinal system, medical system of India which goes back, they say, over like five, 6,000 years. And it's called Ayurveda, the science of life. Um, so the science of the body, if you will, also. And um, it is a life faculty itself, the Ayu that is Venerable Sariputta is referring to. And this is the thing which maintains the material phenomena of living things. Okay. So think of it as the one that needs to be there for the rupa, nama rupa, the rupa to be held glued together. Like in physics, uh, nuclear physics, for example, 
there is, uh, uh, from what I recall, uh, strong and weak nuclear energy, uh, um, uh, gravity, I think it was called. Well, the, the, the adhering, the glue, the thing that holds atoms together, molecules. So the thing which holds the, the quarks together, uh, the protons in check, the electrons in check is a lot stronger than let's say um, the water molecule is kept together. It's called hydrogen bonds, for example, not to get too scientific, but the molecules are getting, are still glue, uh, connected together. They're not breaking apart. They are bonded, but it's a lot weaker. So, but they need that bond in order for life to exist. And that's the IU part, uh, the living vitality. Now, as we age, the living vitality, guess what? Diminishes. Uh, and it's not just a matter of aging. A person can get sick at a very young age, the living vitality drops exponentially. So as far as the heat goes, where, where I translate as internal heat, uh, um, um, sometimes people translate it as warmth, uh, that is um, what is seen by many uh, as the, the heat of karma, they say sometimes, or karmic heat, meaning what we bring in uh, with us into the life. Um, sometimes people have digestion problems, for example, because the Agni or the, the Last week, I think I was talking about Sun Jiao, the, the three burners in you have Chinese, Chinese medicine, TCM. The gut is the third one or the first one, depending on how you look. Uh, the same thing with, with uh, Ayurveda. You have Agni, it has to be there in order for life to happen, in order for you to process your nutrients, your digestion. And similarly, there is Agni in the brain, in the heart. So if a person has, you know, dullness in the mind, their Agni is not there, all there. That's another way of looking at it, but uh, not to get too sidetracked. So just now, friend, this is where he's like coming back. Like, wait a minute, you said that's the thing. And now you're saying returning back to living, you know, uh, vitality. Just now, friend, we heard the Venerable Sariputta state how the living vitality depends on the internal heat for it to be sustained. But we also now hear him state how the internal heat depends on the living vitality for it to be sustained. Now, how are we to understand the statement? To clarify the statement, friend, I shall give you a simile because some wise people understand the deep meaning of a statement through the use of similes. Now, consider a brightly burning oil lamp where its brilliance is witnessed because of its flame, while at the same time, its flame is witnessed because of its brilliance. In the same way, friend, living vitality depends on the internal heat for it to be sustained. And the internal heat depends on the living vitality for it to be sustained. So in a, using a colloquial phrase that we use a lot uh, in English, like the chicken and the egg. <laughs> You know, um, so, uh, friend, are the generative causes for life the same as feelings, or are the generative causes for life one thing and the phenomenon that are felt completely another? Just a, a footnote here for the words generative causes. The, uh, these two words are words that I felt more comfortable in using than 
formations that I used to come across, which pretty much resulted in me being like caught in this labyrinth or, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> maze of just confusion because I couldn't figure out what formations is because I would think about rock formations, that formations. What is the connection of that with sankharas? And then when my practice developed and I got to understand the Dhamma differently, I saw that how it's so important, um, uh, the, the, the usage of the words that we're translating, they need to have a clearer representation instead of just randomly using terms that other people have used, even one's own teachers. Because like the case was with Samadhi, for years I lost, I lost years of practice because I was looking at Samadhi as simply a concentrative exercise. Concentrate, concentrate. That's how I perceived. Perhaps it was because also, uh, uh, because English was not my first language. But I was, I had studied, studied it for a long time too. So the usage of the words are very important and what designations we use for the terms. For that reason, uh, the meaning has to be very much as best as we can as translators. They need to be included in the words that we use. Um, so sankara, either I use sankara or formations. You know, I, I'm going to use sankara. Formations are not going to work for me. But I still use it to help people relate back to what they have read in modern English translations of the term. So I just wanted to put that there for you to be aware of. So, uh, uh, so generative color, Sankara's uh, asking, are they the same as feelings or are they different? Um, by feeling, we need to look at the sixfold uh, sphere of mental conduct, Salayatana. Uh, 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 including the mind in this case. It's not just the five faculties. Um, uh, because um, that is, they are the ones, the six sense bases or six fold bases, Salayatanang, are the doors that connect us with contact, including contact with thoughts and images and, and, and notions and perception. So that is the way. If we don't have these also, we won't be able to attain arahantship. At the very least, mano, the contact of the mind, so that we can at least understand the Dhamma in relation to vis-a-vis -vis the concepts that are going on and the relationships, the, uh, the, the proliferation of thoughts, for example. Friend, the generative causes for life are the same as feelings. For if the generative causes for life and the phenomena that are felt were the same, then a bhikkhu who has entered the cessation of perceptions and feelings would not be able to emerge from it. But because these two are distinctly different from each other, a bhikkhu having entered the cessation of perceptions and feelings can indeed emerge from it. The absolute uh, necessary preconditions to the attainment of uh, the mastery of the jhanas have to be there in order for a person to experience cessation. The Venerable Sariputta is talking about. And what he's talking about is sanya vedaita nirodha samapatti. 
the cessation of perceptions and feelings, the liberation of that, the release of that. So the first four jhanas have to be experienced and also the uh, arupa jhanas have to be experienced by the person in order for that person to go and uh, fall into that state of cessation. Uh, which, by the way, happen only to anagamins and arahants. Now, this is controversial uh, within some groups. And I really debated whether um, um, how to approach this because, uh, but our loyalty has to be to the truth and the truth that is uh, demonstrably, dem, dem, demonstrably is there in the suttas, as well as in one's own experience and also in the Vinaya, by the way, see the connection as Lord Buddha always wanted us to practice and base our understanding of the practice and experience by connecting it, relating it back to the suttas and what he taught. And here's an example. There, in the last decade or so, there have been teachings out there where individuals, individual teachers uh, have talked about um, the cessation taking place even at the level of a sotapanna or a, a sakadagami, uh, which is um, a stream enterer and a once returner. Um, but nowhere in the suttas do you see this, nowhere. And again, our basis of truth has to be, again, the experience, the suttas and the vinaya. Can't avoid these. So anything that doesn't fit any of these, and the experience itself is not valid on, its, on itself because it needs to be validated by the other two. Checked and cross-checked. So we need to uh, look at that in that sense. I remember one time, uh, one previous teacher mentioned how, well, the difference between uh, cessation of a, a, a non-returner or an arhant is that they can uh, intend it to happen. Whereas in the case of a sotapanna or once returner, they happen, they just fall into it. Again, these are things that are not seen in any of the suttas that I've come across. So I don't know where they're getting that. So I had to really do a little bit of uh, checking on my own experiences and, and, and see, and, and, and especially the suttas to see uh, with every, any, any aspect of the Dhamma that is, when I say my experiences. Um, so, we, and I encourage you to do that always, to see if there's any precedent, any, any reference to it in, in clear, or at least even in the commentaries. So this is a unique uh, state because uh, the person who experiences a cessation of perception and feeling, um, at the very least, they need to be an anagami, a non-returner. And again, somebody who has already mastered the previous eight uh, jhanas, 
they mastered it, go in and out, etc. Uh, so, and when the person, in this case, the anagami enters as a magga or path anagami, somebody who has attained the first step, if you remember going up the steps, uh, the stairs. So he has only stepped with one foot. Uh, when they come out of the cessation, the cessation of uh, perceptions and feelings, at that moment, they attain the fruition. They put the other foot in as well. The fruition level of an anagami, at the very least, because there are, uh, that's also an opportunity for the anagami, depending on how much they've worked in the past and their merits, uh, their level of understanding, etc., that they might even become an uh, arahant. Uh, but this is a unique state uh, uh, that occurs with these two uh, levels of attainment. And I know this is going to be uh, shocking for uh, certain groups, at least, groups that I had taken part in in the past, uh, given what uh, is promulgated and those circles, but again, um, my source is not this or that teacher or teaching. My source is the suttas and the vinaya, uh, and, and and yeah. Uh, so, um, and these two uh, states, um, I'm sorry, the this, this state requires two specific uh, special requirements. <laughs> Um, 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 and those are serenity of mind and penetrative insight. Those two things. Remember samatha and vipassana. Because samatha is only going to get us the tranquility practices, serenity of mind practices will only get us to experience at the most neither perception nor non-perception. Neva sanya and sanya. Uh, and these are nice states to be in, but they were there at the time of Lord Buddha, uh, actually, uh, Venerable um, Siddhartha Gautama, when he was simply an ascetic. He had attained these states, the seventh and the eighth jhana, but he was nowhere near close being to uh, uh, an arahant because there was wisdom lacking, insight lacking. And this also might sound controversial for some people, but the ninth, or sometimes the cessation of perception and feeling is considered as the ninth uh, jhana. Uh, but this ninth or the sanya, vedaita, niroda, samapati um, is a cessation of perception and feeling. That didn't uh, exist in the world. Lord Buddha introduced it. So it, it wasn't around. So he's the one who introduced it because if the person attains cessation, they have really bridged the gap. They're so close to becoming an arahant. In fact, this uh, attainment is so important that it comes up in the other Vedalas, uh, in the other uh, um, 
questions and answers like Chula Veda Sutta between uh, Bhikkhuni Arahant uh, Dhammadina and her former husband, uh, who is an Anagami. And they're the, the ones who are qualified to talk about cessation because they understand what it is because of the nuances and the intricacies uh, that are undergone, that are experienced by these individuals, individuals that are on this, on this level or these levels. So uh, just say a few words on this as well. Um, um, the commentators mention how um, uh, the person can sit, sit in this state for no more than seven days because the living vitality that Venerable Sariputta was talking about runs out. And the person here has to relinquish the desire to come back. And there are people who have died uh, simply because they have let go of the desire, the living vitality, uh, because the life force, if you want, want to say, or in, in, you can mention it as, uh, think of it as prana in Ayurveda or chi in, in Chinese medicine. Uh, so that has been let go of, in a sense. And the person just wants to ride that wave beyond seven days, and they just drift into uh, Mahaparinibbana. Uh, so whether it's an anagami or anana, they can do this. But usually um, uh, you have examples of Venerable uh, Mahakasapa, for example, he comes out of a, uh, a seven day sit and, and it's a wonderful way, they say, to allow householders to gain tremendous amount of punya or merits. In fact, they say it's the highest form of merit uh, when a person comes across uh, someone who has just come out of a seven-day sit in this state and you offer them something, food. Uh, in fact, a venerable, uh, not venerable, but Sakka, the king of the gods and his consort, um, they struggle to beat some other persons, uh, you know, poor people, uh, uh, to, to get in front of the line, in a sense. They pretended to be poor people in a village in order for Venerable Mahakasapa to, to, to uh, take their food because of the wealth of merits that they were going to get. Because uh, Venerable Mahakasapa intentionally did not walk into the wealthier side of the village. He went to the poorest but because uh, Sakka had his own, uh, if you will, informant devas, he just immediately found out what was happening. And he went there and pretended to be an old man, his consort old woman, and they made this incredibly tasty, delicious, divine food offering to Venerable Mahakasapa. And he tastes this, takes it at least, he smells it, is like, looks at, at the old man, is like, this is not normal food. Is that you, Sakka? And, and he, he sees them. But basically, just to, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's seven days is, is the limit, they say. Uh, otherwise, the person will, will die. Some people have said, no, you can go beyond seven days. 
I think even being there, uh, uh, why don't you get there, even if it's a minute, and you tell me how, how that feels for you. Um, friend, how many things must the physical body be deprived of first before it is discarded and tossed aside like a lifeless log? Friend, the body must first be deprived of three things. That is living vitality or life force, like we said, internal heat and consciousness before it is discarded and tossed aside like a lifeless log. Friend, what is the difference between someone who is dead and a bhikkhu who has entered the cessation of perceptions and feelings? Now, just to, uh, to mention, why did they include a bhikkhu here? Because Visaka, the, the former husband of uh, Dhammadinna, Lady uh, Venerable Bhikkhuni Dhammadinna, who is an arahant, uh, the husband is, is not a bhikkhu. Well, because he's an anagami. But here in this case, everybody who's sitting in this milieu is talking to the surround. They're all surrounded by bhikkhus or at least novices. So that's why the reference is here being made to the group of bhikkhus who are uh, being educated. Uh, friend, when someone is dead, then their bodily sankharas or generative causes. Also, I used activation energy. Uh, or slash formations, um, sankharas basically, have all ceased and died down. Their verbal sankharas have all ceased and died down. And their mental sankharas too have all ceased and died down. This is in case of the dead person. In addition, their living vitality has ceased and died down, as well as their internal heat, which has been extinguished and come to a complete halt. This uh, part that I want to share with you briefly is, is mentioned in the Chula Vedala, the one, the, the following sutta, actually, uh, number 44, which I just mentioned several times today between Dhammadina and Visaka. That's where we get into more details about uh, specifics into what the verbal sankharas are, bodily sankharas, etc. But just to kind of help you to kind of formulate some ideas about what it is talking about. When we talk about the bodily sankharas, we're talking about the in and out breathing. The bodily sankharas. That comes to a stop in a person who is uh, on this, uh, getting into the state and is in the state. Uh, the verbal sankharas are thinking and pondering. Now, thinking and pondering, you would think, oh, wait a minute, that has to do with the mind. Why is that? But no. Before we break into speech, we have to have the thought in mind. And that is what uh, Venerable, uh, the late Venerable Katukurunde uh, Nyanananda, the one who uh, wrote Concept and Reality, and we talked about the... Uh, Madhupindika um, Sutta, the honeyball, uh, he calls it subvocal speech. I like using that a lot, subvocal speech, but you know, that's the verbal sankhara. And then you have the feeling and, 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 and perceptions as uh, or perceiving as the mental sankharas. So when a person is dead, 
these things, these three come to a full stop. Uh, in addition to the other, uh, the life of vital, living vital life force and the heat is gone. So there's been cases where um, uh, bhikkhus uh, had been sitting, I don't know of any, any uh, in the suttas that is, I don't know of any uh, lay people, householders who have attained anagamin and sat uh, for seven days. Uh, uh, but this particular bhikkhu, one day he was sitting in the forest and people come and they think that he is dead. Uh, so they say, well, we have to burn his body. So they cremate him. He's wearing the robes, this and that. And he's not totally, he's completely unconscious. Like he's, he's, he's sitting, he's in that state. So uh, the commentators, uh, commenta I think it's also in the sutta. I forgot which one though. I'll, I'll come back to it later uh, in another time. And they say that it's uh, not even his robes caught fire. They didn't, it didn't singe. It's, and so in the morning he wakes up and he's all covered in ash. So he shakes it off and he goes to the village because he's hungry. He's been sitting there for seven days. And some of the people who cremated him see him and get shocked. They think he's a peta or a hungry ghost or something. Meanwhile, he's hungry. He's holding his bowl. And, you know, and then he explains to, him what, to them what, what he had been engaged in because they were, I think he was not living in a place where there were dayakas, like Buddhist supporters. So they didn't know anything about that. So anyway, and, and uh, one of the things I read, I think it's, I don't know if it's in the commentary sutta, I can't recall if it is in the sutta, but uh, they say that uh, they usually would put a plaque or some writing in front of the sitter, like, hey, I'm not dead. <laughs> Uh, don't cremate me, don't call the police or paramedics, leave me alone. Uh, you know, I'll come out, don't worry. But one of the ways that we can test is to, uh, they're not going to feel uh, any, any touch or anything. Uh, so you can go and touch their body or just gently, or you can even put like a, a mirror or something like a metal, um, flat metal, something that's cold under uh, their nose to see, uh, well, obviously they're not gonna breathe, uh, but, but actually the heat, the temperature of the body, uh, that has to be there. The breathing is stopped, obviously. I was thinking about a different attainment. On the other hand, with the bhikkhu who enters the cessation of perceptions and feelings, his bodily sankharas have all ceased and died down. His verbal sankharas have all ceased and died down and his mental sankharas too have all ceased and died down. So far, it's the same thing as a dead person. <laughs> but his living vitality has not been exhausted nor come to a halt. And the internal heat necessary for life to occur has not been extinguished, while his mental faculties in fact are now much clearer and refreshed. This is the difference, friend, between someone who is dead and a bhikkhu who has entered the cessation of perceptions and feelings. A friend, how many conditions are necessary for attaining the heart's release by experiencing the equanimous state of neither pain, pain nor pleasure? Uh, so he's talking about the fourth jhana here. Okay, neither uh, physically not feeling the pain or, or pleasure. 
Friend, there are four conditions necessary for attaining the heart's release by experiencing the equanimous state of neither pain nor pleasure. That is, by giving up both pleasure and pain and having already gone beyond joy and anguish. The bhikkhu abides in the purifying mindfulness with equanimity, parisuddhiya, that I was mentioning earlier, as he attains to the fourth jhana. Uh, while experiencing neither the pleasure nor pain. This is, again, the body, you're not feeling anything. And, and in fact, the person might even experience the hands not existing, the legs not existing. So it's a very weird state for many meditators initially. Um, so again, I'm not in, from the camp who likes to give too much information about these different jhanas because the brain is very sneaky. Uh, the mind, that is. Uh, these are the four conditions necessary for attaining the heart's release by experiencing the equanimous state of neither pain nor pleasure. Neutral. Um, so basically, uh, the mental feelings have to be overcome first, and then um, so that the mind doesn't distract itself, and slowly, slowly, the other two. Uh, physical feelings of pain and pleasure have to be uh, transcended right after. Friend, how many conditions are necessary for attaining the signless release of the heart? Animitta, nimitta, animitta. Sign is usually the term, nimitta, that we use. Friend, there are two conditions necessary for attaining the signless release of the heart, not paying attention to any signs and putting the focus only on the signless element. These are the two conditions necessary for attaining the signless release of the heart. Uh, when we talk, whenever you come across signless uh, elements, signless attainment, signless release, what the Venerable uh, um, Sariputta and, and Lord Buddha refer to here by that term is Nibbana. Anytime you have images, anytime you have any type of concepts, experiences, and things like that. Bhante, I'm seeing lights. Okay. So I can't give you a badge for that. You know, like there's no such thing. Um, so I need you to become your own um, teacher at that point and say, well, is this a, a nimitta? Is this a sign? Yeah. Okay. Drop it. Because uh, is that the goal? That's what I have to tell people. Is that the goal that you're after? Is that why you're sitting? To get these cookies? Or are you after the main meal? The fruit of arahantship? Understanding. Well, if that's the case, then you're going after the signless, not the sign. So the signless element that uh, Venerable Sariputta is talking about is, is the animitta dhatu which is Nibbana. So um, in this case, sanyas are, not just in this case, but in every case, sanyas are the enemy. Think of it like that. Sanyas, perceptions, anything that comes to mind, have disdain towards it, run away from it. You're not there to play around, ball with it, to engage in it, to uh, and if you're engaging, guess what? Chances are you're already engaging in thinking and pondering. And whatever state you were in, you drop back down to at the, at the most to the first jhana. So you're not in any lofty state to begin with. 
So images uh, are going to be grasped onto. And the moment you do that, you're so far away from experiencing the signless, which is Nibbana. So drop it and redirect your attention back to the signless, away from any kind of phenomena or grasping onto them. So friend, how many conditions are necessary for remaining in, remaining in the signless release of the heart? This is the Nirodha Samapatti, the actual attainment, staying in it, staying in it. Friend, there are three conditions necessary for remaining in the signless release of the heart. Not paying attention to any signs. Second, putting the focus only on the signless element and previously having determined its duration, how long you're going to stay in it. And these are the three conditions necessary for remaining in the signless release of the heart. Now, because uh, both are arahants, I suspect that is the reason why Venerable uh, Sariputta is feeling comfortable to get into this much detail because Venerable Mahakotita knows all these things. How long he has to sit has everything to do with how long he already predetermined for himself, decided before sitting. And that making that um, determination part also is very crucial for Nanagami who wants to uh, stay and how long he wants, let's say I gave the example of seven days. That is not happening haphazardly. He or she already predetermined that for herself or himself prior to sitting. So, uh, so, so the signless attainment, which is animitta ceto vimutti, uh, the signless release of the heart is none other than the fruition of, of, of arahantship. That's why the arahant can slide into that state uh, and stay for however long he wants. Um, and the arahants, the great arahants, including Lord Buddha used to stay in that state. Uh, especially when his back was hurting so much, um, he would stay either in that state or any of the other arupa states where he wasn't feeling the body anymore, the pain of the body. So if you have it, why not use it? You know, so <laughs> um, because he that would give him energy. And the thing which uh, many times people don't understand, including with the cessation of perception and feeling. Uh, when the person comes out of that state, all of a sudden his six senses become so refined. They're like brand new. It's like uh, you, 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 you turn in your broken piece of car, all of a sudden you get a brand new Ferrari, not to trivialize it. But, you know, we have to use whatever images we have available. Right? So, friend, how many conditions are necessary for emerging out of the signless release of the heart? Friend, there are two conditions necessary for emerging out of the signless release of the heart. Paying attention to signs and removing one's focus from the signless element. So you're redirecting your attention from the signless to the uh, signs, nimitta. These are the two conditions necessary for emerging out of the signless release of the heart. Friend, in comparing the boundless release of the heart, which basically are the immeasurables, we're talking about the Brahma Viharas, uh, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upekka, 
next, the heart's release through nothingness, uh, sunya. The heart's release through emptiness, um, um, that's sunya actually. And the signless release of the heart, do we view them as being different in both their meaning and name, or are they the same in their meaning, but only different in name? Friend, in comparing the boundless release of the heart, the heart's release through nothingness, the heart's release through emptiness, and the signless release of the heart, we can view these states in a way where they are different in both their meaning and name, while in another way, we can view them as having the same meaning, but being different only in name. Uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just continue this. And how, friend, can we view these states as different, as being different in both their meaning and name? Friend, here the bhikkhu abides in meditation while pervading one quarter of space in front of him with the heartfelt experience of loving kindness, metta. When we say quarter, when I describe uh, the experience to students and give the instructions, it's not just straight. Think of yourself being in the middle of a sphere, globe. So you're cutting out chunks to make to simplify the process for yourself. So you're looking at a quarter. So basically think of it like a wide, like almost like peripheral view of wherever your eyes go. And think of it like a circle or like even an octagon shape. So you're giving, radiating loving kindness in that direction. It's not just straight. Um, he does so with the second quarter. You decide which the second is. I, I leave students, you know, this at the student's discretion. And I like to have you guys be playful with it. Sometimes you want to start from the right, sometimes from the left. Who cares? As long as you're covering it up. Uh, so too with the third quarter, also with the fourth quarter, as well as below and above. Zenith and uh, uh, what was the other one? Azimuth. Um, all across oneself, just like a belt. And then finally radiating it like a globe, like a sphere throughout. It's like the sun shines everywhere. Encompassing the worlds around him and everywhere with a mind that is drenched with loving kindness, which is abundant, spreading everywhere, immeasurable, free from any fear or hostility and without ill will. Uh, you cannot experience the other boundless or immeasurable or Brahma Viharas, meaning Karuna Mudita Upeka, without first having strongly established yourself in metta, loving kindness. That is key. You need to really develop this attainment, this, this release, this immeasurable release, where you become so um, accustomed to it, so free, like it's, it's so smooth. You slip into it almost. That often, more often than not, it automatically happens where the person transitions into, for example, compassion, which comes after and these are the four divine abodes that I was mentioning. Um, and, and it allows the person, it allows the person. They're not freedom as, as like the fruition, like we talked about the signless animitta. But 
They prepare the mind because you are shattering, breaking all the walls between this idea of a self and everything else. That idea, that sense of identification, that I have a substantial presence, this is me, this, these are my thoughts, etc., is layer by layer, it's coming off. It's like dead skin falling off. And that falling off process takes place throughout the four divine abodes or the four Brahma Viharas, starting especially with the uh, metta uh, uh, practice of these boundless releases. So he says the same thing. Um, I want to save some time and uh, forgive me if I'm going to jump through, but I'm just going to point out the other four. So similarly, he abides in meditation while pervading one quarter with a compassion, and he does so with all sides. Uh, with, same with altruistic joy, uh, which is mudita. And then finally with upekka, uh, um, with the mind that is drenched with equanimity, which is abundance, spreading everywhere, immeasurable, free from any fear or hostility or any without and without ill will. This friend is called the boundless, boundless release of the heart. So in this Mahavedala Sutta, we are talking and seeing and exploring the different types of releases, liberations. Now, somebody might come and say, Bhante, you're saying release and liberation, but you're at the same time, the sutta is telling us, or you're telling us, that this is not fruition of an arahant. So why is it a release? Why is it a liberation? Why is it called a freedom in the first place? Well, it is a freedom and liberation from this narrow concept of a self being captured in that small world that we think is everything, which is highly, highly drenched in conceit. So if you're practicing the Brahma Viharas correctly, conceit is going to be uprooted a lot faster if you're doing it right and not using it as another tool to enhance your conceit, which I have seen happen. So uh, so they sequentially fall into or build on top of each other until you reach the um, fourth of the Brahma Vihara, which is Upekta. And as you experience a broader sense of expansion. And what friend is the heart's release through nothingness? Here the bhikkhu, by having fully surpassed the dimension of the infinity of consciousness, becomes aware of the dimension of nothingness, personally knowing for himself how there is nothing. In this manner, he enters upon and dwells in the dimension of nothingness. This friend is called the heart's release through nothingness. Now, this also is not supramundane, because this is the third arupajana, where you're experiencing nothingness, but you're not yet in the signless animitta, because you can come out of it and you still have the defilements. The brain, the mind feels amazing. Uh, but uh, there is a sense of freedom, of course. But uh, it is not uh, like uh, we say the taintless liberation of the mind, where the asavas have come apart. The person has attained arahanship. That's not the case here. Uh, but it is nevertheless a release 
because it allows you to disconnect from and taste what it feels like to have a mind without any thoughts, literally. And the person, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to say much about that. And what friend is the heart's release through emptiness? Here, the bhikkhu, having gone to a forest, to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, reflects to himself. This is truly empty of a self, empty of whatever that might constitute or belong to a self. This, friend, is called the heart's release through emptiness. Uh, so again, this is a different layer, a refined, a more subtle layer of discovering that there is no sense of identity. So you're refining it. Uh, basically experiencing a lack of substantiality, not just in yourself, but in all persons, in all things, in all the things that you experience, in all beings. And as the person is developing in these attainments, um, it's inescapable for the person to have a disenchantment, especially dispassion growing within them. And so they don't have uh, things and experiences don't have such a stronger hold on them. That's why the mind doesn't get so agitated. Doesn't get agitated. Remember that sutta where we talked about uh, when where Lord Buddha came and visited uh, Venerable Mahavagallana and he went through all of these steps, you know, nothing is fit to be clung to. When you're doing these things, you see anicca, you see suffering, you see cessation, you see relinquishment, and then you see, wait, 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 wait a minute. Things are changing, there's suffering. Well, why am I so like all up in arms in about these things? Suddenly the mind gets less and less agitated. Sees the whole joke about the whole thing, the play behind it. It's like, oh man, I'm stuck in this. No, I'm not. I'm seeing it now. And I can make a choice not to be pulled into it. And the mind gets less and less agitated until it reaches the state of awakening. So this is one of those states where the person is getting more of a crystal clear understanding of the lack in substantiality. And what, friend, is the signless release of the heart? Aha, this is the supramundane state. Here, the bhikkhu, by not paying attention to any signs and by putting his focus only on the signless element, enters the collectedness of mind that is the signless release of the heart. This, friend, is called the signless release of the heart. This, therefore, is the way to view these states as being different in both their meaning and name. Uh, so... And how, friend, can we view these states as having the same meaning while being different only in name? Here, friend, greed is seen as a limiting factor. Hatred is seen as a limiting factor. And delusion is seen as a limiting factor. In a bhikkhu who has destroyed his contaminants, asavas, these limiting factors are automatically dropped, relinquished, cut off at their root, turned into a palm stump never to grow back again at any point in the future. For this reason, friend, of all the boundless releases of the heart, the immeasurables, the, the, the divine abodes, the immovable release of the heart, the unshakable release or liberation of the mind, is declared as being the very best. 
So here, Venerable Sariputta is saying, the attainment of Nibbana surpasses these. Friend, that immovable release of the heart is empty of greed, empty of hatred, and empty of delusion. Because in the other states, you could or would have these big possibility that they're there. For a person who's obviously was, was an arahant, you don't have these. Uh, friend, greed is something, hate is something, and delusion is something. Uh, something to be reckoned with, basically. Uh, in a bhikkhu who has destroyed his contaminants, these three defilements are automatically dropped, relinquished, cut off at their root, turned into a palm stump, never to grow back again at any point in the future. For this reason, friend, of all the releases of the heart, through nothingness, the immovable release of the heart is declared as being the very best. So it even tops that, the nothingness state, because it's still not supramundane. We're just talking about the seventh jhana. Now, friend, that immovable release of the heart is empty of greed, empty of hatred, and empty of delusion. He's still repeating that when you reach that animitta or signless state of fruition of arahanship, defilements are bye-bye. They're gone. You don't have them. So, um, greed is a sign maker. Hatred is a sign maker. And delusion is a sign maker. When we say sign maker here, we're talking about sannyas in the mind. Remember the phenomena, images, this, Bhante, I'm seeing lights, I'm seeing this, my body's feeling that, that's all sign making. Don't waste time with that. Stop messing around. Go back to what you need to be doing. In a bhikkhu who has destroyed his contaminants, these three defilements are automatically dropped, relinquished, cut off at their root, turned into a palm stump never to grow back again at any point in the future. For this reason, friend, of all the silence releases of the heart, the immovable release of the heart, the unshakable liberation of the mind, which is the same thing, is declared as being the very best. Now, friend, that immovable or unshakable release of the heart is empty of greed, empty of hatred, and empty of delusion. This, therefore, is the way to view these states as having the same meaning, but being different only in name. Uh, so the defilements can often be used as a yardstick to distinguish between, as a measure, between uh, putujana, uh, common unevolved uh, living being, um, or a noble disciple, like a sotapanna, a stream enterer, or a, a once returner, or a non-returner, or a narahant. So. Whether they do have the defilements or not, that is the measure. So you can come to me and say, Bhante, I'm an Arahant now. I have people now you know, telling me that, oh, so-and-so is an Arahant, or he's a layperson and he's still an Arahant. There goes that, because you cannot be an Arahant and be a layperson. Um, it's impossible. And there's no president, the Buddha never talked about that. So anything that's not mentioned in the sutta, sorry. Um, same thing with defilements. Well, my teacher gets mad, angry, and upset when you take something from him. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's greed. My teacher gets angry and starts kicking the dog or the cat. But you have to understand, my teacher is, is, is a special being. He's, a, he's an arahant or he's really close to it. No, he's not. There's defilement there. He's definitely not an arahant. 
or she, doesn't matter. So basically using the defilement as a measure and it behooves upon the student to do their legwork, to scrutinize again. Uh, so the term that uh, for the immovable release of the heart that runs throughout the sutta, especially the last portion is akuppa ceto vimutti, one of the most beautiful phrases that I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's, it's just beyond words, uh, as we're seeing how beautifully Venerable Sariputta is describing it. And it gives us the enthusiasm, the energy, the willingness, the zeal to go ahead and, and pursue our path harder and more with more diligence and vigilance to push and to go and taste these states for ourselves. So finally, the Sutta, sutta reads, that is what the Venerable Sariputta said, and the Venerable Mahakotita was utterly delighted in hearing the words spoken by the Venerable Sariputta. Okay, a very juicy, very spread out, detailed sutta. And now uh, I will pause <laughs> and hopefully there's some questions, uh, comments. Oh, Upatissa has a question. Unfortunately, he's unable to uh, connect through voice, so I shall read. Thanks very much, Pante, his message. I recall a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, book of the 11th, where Venerable Ananda was explaining to a lay disciple that any one of the jhanas, including the first, would potentially take one to ending of asavas. Yes, that is correct. But if because of residual clinging to dhamma attains non-returning, yes. So it seems that aranship or non-returning does not even require the fourth jhana, absolutely. Not to mention sanya vedaita niroda. Could you please shed light uh, upon this, Sadi? Yes, yes, absolutely. A very good question. Uh, you do not need to experience the fourth jhana or the second, but it really helps. The first jhana, especially uh, in different places I've come across, I cannot recall where in the suttas, unfortunately, but. Uh, even the first jhana is like the springboard into arahantship. Because now you have introduced uh, your mind to a state of being that is completely cut off from the world that you knew up to that point. Up to that point. Let's not forget, even uh, Siddhartha Gautama, when he sat under the Bodhi tree when he was like, okay, now what do I do? I know all the routes that don't take me to Nibbana. I left those and I came here and I made the resolution to sit. What should be my object of meditation? He had the seventh and the eighth jhanas, but he had been practicing the one-pointed type of concentration where you completely lock yourself down where there is no possibility for wisdom to take place. But here, 
suddenly he recalled how he when he was a child, he was sitting under a uh, rose apple tree and weather was perfect and the sun was, you know, beautiful, everything, the breeze. And suddenly he fell into the first genre. And immediately his body remembered, his mind remembered, and he just fell into that. That became his jumping board, if you will, to attain eventually, uh, very quickly, the arahantship and the stages of an arahant and the three knowledges. So there was no mention of the fourth jhana. And even in the suttas, we are encouraged to not beat ourselves up if you're not going after the uh, Sanya Veda, it's a Niroda Samapati. But sometimes I've seen uh, many meditators using that, dropping uh, that statement or uh, whatever. And it is uh, another way of holding on to something. And typically it involves mana, which is conceit, plain and simple. First of all, Sotapanas and Sakadagamis cannot experience cessation unlike what some teachers might be teaching out there. They don't, there's no evidence of that in the suttas. If, if you do, if somebody does, please send me an email, let me look it up. It's only in the case of a anagamin and an anagamin. But do you need to experience that state of cessation? No. And I've seen people explain that no, it is only after you've entered that cessation state. When you come out, you're going to see some things and this and that, and that's what's going to take you, you know, that's the experience of Nibbana. No, it's not. Again, coming out of the state that I was talking about, the cessation of perception and feeling, that would be like the anagami stepping with his other foot inside meaning the fruition stage, or in the case of, of, of a, 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 somebody becoming an arahant, an anagami becoming an arahant. But this is one way. And it requires that the person have done and mastered all the other eight jhanas. Okay, that part we know. You can also do the vipassana practice, which allows the person to forego all of the jhanas even. You don't even have to have the first jhana in some cases, in many cases actually. So I don't uh, want to put the idea out there or the impression that you must have cessation. No, you don't. To be an arahant or to experience Nibbana, you do not need to experience that. Uh, level of, of uh, sanya niroda samapati sanya vedaita niroda samapati so yes i hope that answers that question but the first jhana is crucial fourth jhana is not but it is a very lovely experience because it teaches the mind to become acclimated in what equanimity feels like because up until the fourth jhana, there's joy, there's flickering, there's, there's, there's the agitation. The mind is still moving. There's turbulence, if you will. And even joy at that level, still, it becomes annoying. 
basically. But despite the fact that it's a lovely experience, the first jhana, second jhana, yes, it's, it gets less. But as you're going up to the fourth jhana, these factors that uh, Venerable Sariputta talked about, uh, the five jhanic factors, uh, they are moving. They're not steady. They're not like fixed. So you're having equanimity also develop, which is part of the uh, Brahma Viharas coming into your view. But the joy, the bliss, the thinking, pondering, they're receding up to nothing until you come out or drop from that state to another jhana, lower. So I hope that uh, that was a fair uh, answer to your question, Patissa. If I haven't answered it, please uh, send me, send us another note. Uh, um, um, other thoughts, questions, comments? The, if you oh, have I have a question. question. Oh, yes, Ross. Oh, uh, Bhante, yes, uh, thank you. Um, that was a little bit hard to understand, but you know, I, I try to follow. Um, my question is, uh, it seems that, uh, you know, you yourself are pretty good at discerning because you, you always give examples about people who view that uh, <clears throat> they've attained this or that, but actually it's a sort of a illusionary or delusionary and that basically, you know, they are actually uh, uh, kind of clinging or <clears throat> stuck on the semblance maybe, or the appearance or whatever, rather than the uh, the essence or the uh, kind of uh, maybe reality. Now, there's gotta be a lot of well-intentioned people who are a bit stupid or not as, you know, um, for whatever reason, you know, can't quite, to, our understanding is not as, uh, I guess as, as deep or profound and we, we may have good intentions, but uh, you know we may still be deluding ourselves. But I think you mentioned that uh, you know we need to be self-observing uh, and self-whatever, um, um, uh, self-perceiving. But I think that it's really, really difficult. Um, I guess you know maybe more practice is required, but. You know whether it's the mind or heart or whatever uh self-analysis is uh extremely difficult and very difficult to discriminate between you know one might have a burst of positive feeling and mistake it for a certain type of uh, breakthrough uh whether it's you know buddhist or psychological um so i don't really quite um I have difficulty in a, a sort of a practical way of ascertaining um, one's uh, one's progress or one's one's delusion. I would say so. That's basically my it, question. It requires a, the person to establish some solid priorities. So this is not the path of dhamma. Is not 
in a culture where we are dumbing down education constantly, we've been doing that for a few decades, starting with universities down all the way down to elementary. I see that pattern also uh, going on for the last at least two decades, if not three, um, in the field of Dhamma, where teachers are entertaining. They become the new Oshos, Oshos or Rajnishas of today, but wearing Buddhist garb to try to get more listeners. They dumb down the teaching. They use even vulgar language, vulgar language. And these are bhikkhus in some cases. Or they give their travel itineraries or mention how whatever, they have these very affluent circles and things like that. But specifically the problematic part for me is when they dumbed down by misrepresenting the Dhamma. And that is uh, basically catering to the level of the listener. That's a problem. Even when I was a high school teacher, middle school teacher, I never agreed with that whole concept of no child left behind. All right, you have a student using your word who's dumb, which is not something that we're allowed to say, right? And a student who was very, uh, ex you know, excelled in, in his or her learning and has the zeal and the desire to learn. So the teacher is being overwhelmed with more and more responsibilities to cre create new lesson plans, new curriculum, this and that, to cater to this one so that this doesn't feel left out, this one. Now, what also is happening, unfortunately, is we're silently killing the drive and interest and wisdom and possibility of growth for the other. And I refuse to do that. I would spend more time, even if they didn't allow me to spend time on the students who were excelling, not that I was ignoring the other one. No, I would take care of that as best as possible. I wasn't gonna uh, sacrifice at all the possibility of the other students who are there to learn. Because nobody actually in this country uh, gets to repeat a grade, for example, which is another debacle, in my opinion. Now, coming back to the Dhamma, that same methodology have been seen, meaning sticking to uh, the teacher, the ultimate teacher example was Lord Buddha. He didn't sit down and talk with a student who, uh, who didn't have the capacity, shall we say, to delve into the jhanas, didn't have the tools of analysis like Venerable Sariputta, Venerable Mahaputta, and a bunch of others. But nevertheless, the Lord Buddha used different tools. But it behooved on the, upon the student to make that a priority and not go about living their life and treating the Dhamma as, yeah, it's a weekend thing, or it's a, it's a Dana thing, or it's just a, like reading the suttas as if they would read a novel. That is the disrespect being shown by the student. And that is definitely gonna keep that student falling behind. Now that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the teaching. It has everything to do with the wrong approach of the student. We have accepted other aspects of our lives. Let's say you like to ride a bike. 
You take care of your body. You like to eat good food, healthy food. You're a professor. Okay. For each of these, you have to be excellent to your own capacity. For example, if you're riding your bike and you keep looking left and right, you're going to slam into something and fall off into LA River. So you're very, very alert and practicing yoni sikara about making sure that you know where you're going. And if there's a threatening situation, you're not going to go there. Ah, now can you bring that mindset into the practice? That already is going to take you from that level of where you're saying you are at to a level that is really going to allow you to taste some of these things because you have proven to yourself that you can be excellent in different things. But many of us cut ourselves short, the practice, the, delay, the, the, the willingness and the prioritization of the Dhamma. That is our problem. It's not the Dhamma's fault. It's like those similar, similar to those teachers who dumb down the Dhamma. And I'm completely allowed against that. And I will never shy away because they're doing, they're actually misrepresenting the Dhamma and it's very bad karma for them. Whether they're bhikkhu, bhikkhuni, doesn't matter. Lay or not, doesn't matter. So making it a priority is absolutely necessary. And coming back to that last portion of your question about how can I ascertain through your own experience. And like I was saying throughout the sutta repeatedly, experience joined with you going back to the suttas on your own and really carefully, meticulously looking at what was said about this experience. That requires a lot of dedication on your part. And I cannot give you that, the Buddha that cannot give you that, the Dhamma cannot give you that. You give yourself that because you give the same level of dedication in other aspects of your life completely. But when it comes to the Dhamma, many of us are very hesitant and that is a problem. And that actually reflects on the uh, society that we live in today. We choose, we, we pick and choose, cherry pick the Dhamma. And that is doing such a great disservice to ourselves and to the legacy of Lord Buddha. And that's why uh, we need to be scrutinizing what it is that we think is the Dhamma we think is the Dhamma. No, what I think doesn't matter. I need to validate that first for myself to understand how much am I even giving myself? I used to take precepts years ago, verbally. But when it came time for me to sit with my friends, even though I never liked it, my friends would pour wine and things. I didn't want to disappoint them, so I would drink a glass or two. But in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm not breaking a precept. No, you're not. You are, I mean, breaking a precept. But that was something that I had to prioritize because I said, what do I consider more? The socializing aspect or wanting to go beyond and seeing what Lord Buddha is talking about, virtuous behavior, sila. Like, what is that? Is it just me taking precepts? Yeah, I'm now Upasaka. Yes, my name is, you know, in those days, Chandana. Yes, okay. 
Chandana, Upasaka, Chandana. Okay, yes. Who cares? If I'm not benefiting, I'm not tasting the fruits of Sila, Samadhi, Panya, that's when I have to go into action. Because I cared more about my high school curriculum or, or teaching, uh, you know, TAing in those days, actually, at a non-public school and making sure all the students were taken care of than I did about the quality of my mind or what I was putting in my body, what type of workouts I was engaging in physical to keep my body healthy. So that was my priority, not the Dhamma. That was 30 years ago. So something had to change and it was my choice. So if the student wants to be dumb, that's their call. That's a life wasted. Plain and simple, because there were a lot of dumb students who came to Lord Buddha and they did not remain dumb. They became Arahants. So that's the challenge to that dumb student. What are you going to do with your life? So you do not, the person does not need to, as I said earlier to Upatissa's question, you do not need to get to these lofty states. No. Take any segment, even Lord Buddha says this in the Dhammapada, you don't need to know the suttas. You don't need the 84,000 teachings. No. Pick one verse. It was even half a line that Venerable Sariputta heard and he became a Sotapanna. Make that your challenge. Make that your challenge. And let it take you wherever it needs to take you, but give it your all. That is what's required. That will be enough to put an end to all these questions where you feel like, you know, I'm not there, I'm not this, or I need to dump. No, no, no. Saying those things, it's also self-defeating. And that's not healthy. Why? You have the Dhamma is right here. You have such tremendous merits to be here. And on top of that, you have very good aditana determination to be here every single week. Even when you had left the hospital just earlier, five minutes earlier, you show up and you sit throughout. So many people don't do that, but you do it despite all these quote unquote shortcomings. So why not take it all the way? The ship works, this boat works, the sail works, everything works, the mass, everything. I have, even if it breaks down the engine, I have some very good oars and I got some good muscles. Let me go for it. Why don't we do that? Because you do that with other aspects of your life. But those aspects are gonna keep you disappointed because there's another life waiting for you. Whether you're gonna find Dhamma there or not, I cannot say, no one can. But now you have the opportunity, take it all the way, take it all the way. And that is the answer that I would give to that question. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a fair answer. Um, I think so. <laughs> One thing I, I don't agree with, though, is about the, uh, you know, I mean, in teaching a lot of times they say, you know, you have to, especially they say you have to go where the student is coming from because of, you know, educational inequity or inequality or racism or yeah, a whole bunch of factors. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in that sense, you know, at the beginning, sometimes you do have to. Of course. You do have to compromise a little bit, you know. Yes, but looking at the whole picture, 
not making yeah. that the center of focus, which is what I see in education. That is uh, creating a handicapped, that's another word that we're not allowed to use these days, a situation where teachers have both arms and legs tied behind their backs. They're supposed to be these miracle workers and they don't even have TAs many, many places and overburdened with more responsibilities. So they cannot help but to drop the level of proficiency required. And we're dumbing down students. And that's why you, you don't have students even in their 20s these days going into college or even college graduates who have sufficient amount of critical thinking. You have 30, 40 year olds, even more sometimes who don't have the exercising ability of critical thinking. You have a lot of dumb people. You know, I used to think zombies don't exist, but actually they do. We do have them all around us because nobody is wanting to take on individual responsibility. And we have all these lofty social justice, this term, that term, that term, and we're always getting a new one. A few months ago, it was BLM. This, this month is this. A few months earlier to that, there's this Me Too, there's this, that. There's always a new flavor. But we never sit down critically looking at data, investigate, and see our relationship and what I'm putting into it and how much of my life is being stripped away. Because these are just content. These are just sanya. What am I doing in relation to that? Many people are losing their lives and having done nothing, no work done on themselves. That's a wasted life. That's a sorry excuse for being a human being, period, as far as the Dhamma is concerned. I don't care about these lofty ideals because they leave my, leave my stomach empty at the end of the day, metaphorically speaking. But that's what today's culture is talking about and creating that that's the new saint today, <laughs> if you use these lofty terms, but you neglect the number one priority, which is working on your mind, period. Because you're going to still die. You will die. Your loved ones will die. You're going to get old. You're going to get sick and you're going to die. What are you doing about that? The Buddha called them the uh, divine messengers. Old age, sickness, death. So we have to take the heed and, and just take the call. So I hope that helps. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Any other thoughts, comments? All right. So I think uh, this was good. Uh, Good discussion, good uh, sutta. Um, and if you have any further questions, of course, go ahead and, and uh, reach out, email me, let me know, and, and I'll do my best to answer them as best as I can. So at this point, let's uh, share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving ones be suffering free. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. 
Sādu, sādu, sādu. Be well. May the Triple Gem bless you all. And may you be inspired to put more effort, energy, and compassion into your own practice. Uh, they go hand in hand. And uh, please uh, take care of yourselves and each other with the blessings of the Triple Gem. See you next week.